I'm going to open us in a prayer and then we'll we'll get started. Dear Lord, um, I just thank you for the opportunity to talk about your story and about the things that you're doing. Um, dear Lord, I just pray that um, through this people see you um, because it's all yours. And I pray that you're glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so my name's Joey. I am a family practice doctor in Memphis, Tennessee uh, at Christ Community Health Services. So this is my lovely family. So um, my girls, the girl portion of my family could not be here, um, but my son is here in the back. So give a wave, JP. There he is. So we'll see if he can be quiet for another hour. (laughs) All right, a few disclaimers. Um, So... I often overpromise things uh, to my kids, and inevitably, when they realize that I haven't given them all they want, I get a look like this. Like, um, so the talk I think was um, entitled "Preparing for Inner City Medical Missions." Um, as we get through the talk here and realize there's not a lot of medicine in here, um, that's just because medicine, kind of in my view, is kind of just a tool. It's just a tool to for the greater glory of God. And so it's a part of what we do. And, um, you know, if you have questions about how medicine exactly fits into it, um, I, I, we can have a time for that afterwards. But the bigger, the overarching thing we do is we just proclaim his truth um, where we're at. And medicine has kind of allowed us to be in an avenue to do that. But the bigger part of what I'm going to talk about is really just incarnational living um, in a neighborhood um, and kind of how that's looked in our life and then give a few principles for um, that I've kind of learned over the last four years uh, living in the area we're living in. So um, my story, this is actually my second time at this uh, conference. Six years ago, me and my wife came, um, and we were kind of had this heart ever since she was a little girl and grew up in the Baptist church and she was part of GAs and she just knew she was going to be an um, overseas missionary and me, I accepted Christ um, during my junior year of high school and then during my freshman year of college, felt like the Lord was leading me towards medical missions. Didn't have any idea what that was, but I felt a very clear calling towards that. And so kind of everything kind of between that period and when I went to medical school and then went to residency, it was kind of working towards that idea of going overseas, like just that idea of going overseas. And I think in my head I had Africa in my mind and um, my wife, and that's what we were focused on. And we showed up here six years ago, and I opened up the conference book and saw all these great names in there, uh, some people that had read their books. Um, uh, Steve Saint was here, and I'd obviously read about that story a lot. And so I was like, man, i got to go hear him talk. And so um, I ran up to a session. It was actually in the chapel area. And I got there, and apparently everybody else wanted to hear him too. And it was full, and so I was locked out. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? And so I, I stumbled into another talk um, given by Rick Donlin. Um, and at that point, he wasn't maybe as big as he is now. And so he had lots of empty seats in his talk. And so I was able <laughs> um, so we don't want him to hear. I don't think he's here. Um, <laughs> Because he's, he's famous. Um, but anyway, so I stumbled in and just heard about kind of this, this different type of ministry in the United States and working in inner cities and working among the marginalized that um, was just I hadn't really even thought about, really, because my mind had been so focused on overseas. Um, and I kind of had that as where we want to do. And even after that talk, I was like, that's really cool. But, you know, I'm, I'm going overseas. That's what I'm going to do. Um, that's, what my, that's what my heart's all about. 
But despite that, me and my wife were so intrigued by it, we took a rotation. We went to Memphis, and we worked in one of the clinics there, and we saw kind of what was going on there. Um, and once again, we left Memphis. We were like, that's really, really cool. It's not for us. We're going to go overseas, but um, really, really cool. Um, interesting, when we actually went to Memphis, um, this would have been, I guess, right after the conference, it was about six months after it, so about five and a half years ago, we went to Memphis just to do a little two-week rotation there, and I was going to work in the clinic, and we were going to be in one of the neighborhoods, and um, Rick's not a very detail-oriented person, he's kind of big picture, and so um, I had arranged the the time to go there, um, and actually gotten his cell phone number, and just figured I would show up there and when we got there I was calling him to figure out where I was supposed to go and he wouldn't pick up his phone and so we just kind of pulled into a neighborhood um, and it was summertime it was May Memphis in May it was really hot and we pulled into the wrong neighborhood and the neighborhood we pulled into was a neighborhood called Orange Mound I'm going to talk about it a, a lot more as we go through but you can Wikipedia and you can find out all about Orange Mound very proud heritage it was um, one of the first communities built and uh, four African-Americans, by African-Americans, and so it's got this huge history. Um, but after um, the kind of the desegregation of schools, um, a lot of the people, professionals from that neighborhood moved out, and it's left, a, it's left it real ravaged by drugs and gangs and poverty. Um, so anyways, when we pulled into it five and a half years ago, it was me and my wife and my, um, my oldest daughter that was in the picture before Bethany. We pulled into the neighborhood, and... Um, we obviously looked different, like we looked very different, and the streets were just packed because, um, especially in our neighborhood, but most inner cities I found is people are not hiding out in their back, you know, the back of the, the house. They're out in the streets, you know, they're barbecuing in the front yard, they're out in the streets, and as we driving through and in our um, Explorer, we looked different, we felt very different, and then a cop actually pulled us over and said, you're lost, you've got to be in the wrong spot. Um, and I said, I think we are. Actually, I didn't know because I knew that what they were doing in Memphis were working in neighborhoods like this. Um, but I felt like I was lost for sure. Um, and my daughter, who I think she was two and a half or three at the time, she said, I'm scared. I want to go home. Um, and so the cop escorted us out of the neighborhood. And as we were driving out of the neighborhood, um, my wife was like, I'm glad we're going overseas because I'd, I'd like to go anywhere but that neighborhood. And it was. We were in the wrong neighborhood. The neighborhood, we, we eventually found it. And um, we served our time in Memphis and we left and thought, you know, we'll, we'll always kind of remember that time, but probably never end up doing anything like that. Um, so I introduced you all to my son, JP. As I finished residency, we were um, preparing to start our application and go overseas and had a lot of ideas about what we were going to do. Um, but God had also put another burden um, or another uh, joy in our heart uh, to expand our family, and we had been working on it for several years. And uh, through God's providence, we um, a lot of things happened to delay our ability to get our son home to us. And so I graduated, and we still did not have our son home um, at that time. And so we really could not go overseas. We were in this period of life where we had planned for you know seven, eight, nine years to you know finish residency and go overseas, and that's what we wanted to do. Um, but we need to get our son home, and we were, we were we just were not going to be able to do it. Um, and so we kind of got to this kind of fork in the road uh, of life. And I feel like this is maybe one of the reasons I'm excited about giving this talk is because um, I've known a lot of people that get to that situation that have this calling from the Lord. They have these things they want to do. 
Um, they feel like it's overseas, and then life starts happening, children start happening, you get married, or, or whatever, maybe family members get sick, for whatever reason, you can't make that happen. And so then you think, well, that's closed, so my other option is just to settle back into American culture and, and just to kind of live the American way. Um, but there, there really are other alternatives to doing that, and that's kind of what we found out. Um, and so as I started thinking about what we were going to do, there were really some different options. I could stay right where I was at in the place I trained, and I could work in a community there, and we were still very plugged into our church, and there's a lot of good we could have done. Um, or we could go a different route. We could maybe go um, back to and doing something like they were doing in Memphis. And uh, it was about that time we, we actually ran into um, the founder of Christ Community, Rick Donlin, again, and he was saying, um, they actually were wanting people to move into this community that we had gotten lost in, Orange Mound. They didn't have people living there yet, but they had a, a physician assistant who was wanting to move in, and they were looking for families to move into this community. They had had a clinic there for four or five years, but they wanted people to move in. Um, and, and we prayed about it, and we started thinking about it. And, we, um, um, and one of the things that I think I thought about a lot of, at that time um, was – you know, what was I made for, right? And so um, Luke 19, this very popular story, uh, uh, is Jesus is getting ready to go into Jerusalem. Uh, he's getting ready to have his triumphal entry, and um, he knows that people have this false assumption of him, right? They have this assumption that he's going to go in and be this great military um, conqueror. He's going to set up his king. His disciples kind of traveling to Jerusalem had been asking him, hey, when when we get there, can I be on your right and I be on your left? And, you know, it's going to be really cool because, you know, his disciples at that point were convinced that he was the Son of God, right? So they had made that confession earlier on in the Bible. Um, and they were convinced of that, but they thought because he was the Son of God that they were in on something that was about to be really, really powerful. And they were. They just had a misunderstanding about it. And so as they're getting ready to go in Jerusalem, he tells them a story. He says there's a king or a or master who's going to go away. Before he goes away, he's going to call his servants to himself. And in the story, he says he calls ten servants to himself, and he gives them each kind of uh, ten minas, or, or he gives each of them an equal amount of money. Uh, and then the king goes away, and um, he tells his servants to put, it to, to put that money to use. Um, and when the king goes away, the people actually send a delegation to the king, and they said, we don't want you to be our king. But it didn't really matter because he was coming back anyways. And so while he was gone, um, as the story goes, uh, the people put that money to use in different ways, right? And so when he finally comes back, he calls them to give an accounting for for the money he gave them. And uh, one comes before him. He says, um, you know, I knew you were a hard man, so you gave me, you know, uh, ten amounts of money, and I made ten more. He said, great job. I'm going to put you in charge of ten cities. The second guy, he says, you gave me ten. I I made you five more, right? And then the last guy he called before him, he said, you gave me this. You're a hard man. I was scared of you. I didn't want to mess it up, so I just kind of dug a hole and kind of um, hid it there, and I'm giving it back to you. And, uh, And the king says, you're wicked. You're wicked, and what you have will be taken from you and given to somebody else. And then the really shocking part of that story is he says, everybody who wanted to not make me king and everybody who's my enemy, bring them before me and kill them in front of me, right? So not a happy ending for those people. Um, but this parable is, is meant to convey truth to us, right? So our, our king has gone away, right? And he is going to come back. And he is going to want accounting of how we used 
the talents and the abilities, the money, all these things that he's given us, he wants to know how we're going to use them, right? Um, and they are to be used for his kingdom, right? So I think sometimes we mistake that and we think that those things are just supposed to be used for us. Like he gave us our talents, we're going to, you know, make more money out of them, right? We're going to invest them, make more money. No, he wants, the return he's looking for is for his kingdom, right? And so as I started trying to think through that, like, God, God, you made me with this heart to serve people. You've given me this talent, being a um, being a doctor at that point, a family practice doctor. I had this this talent, and how am I going to use it, right? Um, and so through prayer, me and my wife, we both agreed that um, we ought to go move into that neighborhood that we've never wanted to go back to. And so um, we started that process. Um, and after we made that decision, um, fear just started locking in on us. Um, and so uh, during the process where we were selling our house in the um, community we were living in and moving there, we actually finally got our son home. Um, and we just started really going through a period of, and really a very dark period of kind of depression. And um, Because what are we doing? Like it seems to go against everything we know to take our kids. At that point we had three kids, um, all three of our kids. Um, to take them and move them into this neighborhood. And we had all these images of what it was going to be like. Because um, same thing, if you Wikipedia Orange Mountain and gangs, you'll, there's a whole article on that. Like it's, it's, there's a lot, of, a lot of bad stuff that goes on in Orange Mountain. It's very violent. Um, there's a lot of gangs. Um, and so I think we had all these things. And so a lot of fear w- went into that. Um, and one of the fears we had was when we move into this neighborhood, um, how are we going to interact with people? What are they going to think of us? Like, you know, we look different. At that point, like, it was really 100% African American. And, like, how are people going to, what are they going to think about us? Are they going to intentionally target us? Are they, you know, are they going to come steal all their stuff? You know, whatever. And so we had these things, and um, but but we're stubborn, and so we, so we kept on and we, we moved in. Um, and one of the things we saw, and this is, is a really neat part of our journey, is that um, God had already prepared um, a work for us to do that. So that's Ephesians 2.10. We know that. Like God prepares, us, prepares things in advance for us to do, right? And so um, uh, in, a, in a funny twist, um, there's actually a guy here who worked on our house, helped um, make our, you know, help renovate our house. I'm going to show a picture of later. But there's a ministry there called Jacob's Ladder. Um, and, um, and through a lot of really um, amazing ways, a house became available for our family. There's not a lot of great housing options in the neighborhood we're at for family of five. Um, but a house came available, and through this um, building, uh, this renovating of the house, um, I showed up there, and he said, you know what? The guy who was in charge of Jacob's Ladder said, I've got, all, I've got this teenage center where we got a, we got a bunch of teenagers come, and um, they've always kind of wanted to play on a basketball team, and they've never had a coach. Would you consider coaching them? And so I was like, and I literally, like, I'd just gotten there, like, that week. And I said, sure, like, I'll come over and meet them. And I went over and met all these teenagers, and um, they're like, yeah, we want to we play basketball. We're really great. Um, um, nobody's ever asked us to be on a team before, but we play outside all the time. And, um, and they donated a, a gym for us to use once a week. And um, I think the first week I had, you know, eight or nine kids. And um, weeks later we had 30 kids showing up. And, um, and it was just amazing. And, like, we, we started just telling, telling them the Bible stories 
at every practice. Um, and then I would drive them all around Memphis and drop them off at their homes. Um, and they kept telling me how awesome they were. And then we played our first game, and third quarter we're down 26 points, and um, I realized they're not so awesome at basketball. There's a reason they never got picked to be on a basketball team. Um, and so the first season we went 0-9, um, and we lost. I think this is the closest we ever came, honestly. Um, but uh, just just this immediate kind of acceptance kind of into the neighborhood, this immediate just ability to connect with teenagers. So we did a lot of connecting with teenagers early on and, and just trying to figure out how do we convey truth to them because um, their experiences are very different. So a, a, a quick story, one of the first weeks that we had them, we would play basketball a little bit in our, our little practice time, and then we would all circle up in chairs um, and I would try and convey truth to them. And so the, the, one of the first times I said, all right, I want everybody to close your eyes. I want you to imagine um, what I'm about to tell you. And I told them the, a story about um, the just judge. I don't know if you ever heard it before, but uh, it's this idea that you're, you're speeding, um, you know, going 120 miles an hour down the road, and you get pulled over, and the cop gives you a ticket, and he tells you to be in court on a certain date. And you show up in court, and you know you're guilty. They've got you on video. They show you the, um, the video and everything else. And when you show up in court, uh, you don't really have the money to pay it. You don't have a job, so you, you, you think you're, you're in big trouble. And so you sit down, and you don't know what you're going to do. And you look up, and your dad is the judge, right? And so you're like, oh, man, I've got this. Like, my dad's the judge. He's going to let me off the hook. And, um, and so then when you know, they, they go through, they have the trial, and then at the end, um, the, your dad, the judge, looks at you and he declares the verdict. He says, you're guilty. I charge you $300 or, you know, whatever the penalty might be. And you're like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe my dad would do that. And then um, your dad, because of his love for you, gets off, comes around, takes off his robe, and he pays the fine for you, right? So this beautiful story that makes a ton of sense to me, right, because I have a dad who um, – would act in, in, in a similar fashion. Um, and I told that story and I had them open their eyes, and they all looked at me like, no, 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 that would never happen. It didn't make any sense to them at all, zero sense at all, because none of them had a dad who had been involved in their lives. And so I'm like, okay, well, that was a colossal failure, right? <laughs> um, and it was, and that's okay. Like so many of the things I've done in our neighborhood have been colossal failures, but in those failures, like we've built relationship and we've showed love and we've kept planting the seeds, and we'll, we'll kind of see some of that. Um, so out of, out of that um, kind of basketball team, we started just inviting these guys into our house, and um, we started just having them over all the time. Um, having parties for them. This was a Christmas party where we gave them new basketball shorts to wear for the team that never wins. Um, and so this is a picture of my, my neighbor, um, Don Don. So um, our neighbors started just showing up at our house. Like um, we just, all we did, like it's going to seem very, very simple. We moved into community and people started coming over. And um, and so then we encountered this kind of idea, like, what do we do? This thing seems to be kind of spiraling out of control. And so we, we tried to organize in our brain, um, like, what do you do? Because sometimes they would show up when we didn't want them there. Like, it would be 1030 at night, and they'd show up, and they want to ride home. And um, how do you deal with that? Or it would just be a very inconvenient time. And, um, and so we, we got a lot of people's opinions on that. Um, and, and what we 
kind of decided um, was that we had prayed for this. We had prayed for relationships. We had prayed for people to show up in our house. We had prayed for this. Um, and a lot of people can set up a lot of rules, and um, but they're just they're just opinions. And so we kind of decided that um, we're just going to open our house um, in, in just a kind of a crazy, chaotic way for kids to feel like they can come by. Um, and... And the truth is, the the best times that we've had have been the times when it's most inconvenient for us. Um, and um, this night in particular, so the way it a lot of times works is that you know I get off work and they they're either already there or they're showing up, and we share whatever dinner we got, and then we sit around and we just um, we talk about truth. This particular night, I, I remember very vividly, we were talking about proofs for the resurrection, right? Um, and they were. Soaking it up, not because I'm a great theological uh, thinker or anything like that, but because I love them, I eat dinner with them, and I coach a basketball team that never wins. Um, all those things are, are super important to them. And I was a basketball player, so I thought I was a really great coach, actually. Um, but it turns out I'm not. Um, and so what we've done is we've just gotten really tangled up into our community and in with our neighbors. Um, and uh, some relationships are very easy to form, like what we found is uh, kids and teenagers are, are super easy to form. Um, uh, some of our neighbors are a little more, maybe a little more skeptical. Um, uh, but over time, with just doing very simple things, we made a little garden with one of our neighbors. Uh, we go around at uh, Christmas and we hand out peanuts or uh, little gift bags or whatever, and my kids sing Christmas carols to them. They look at us like we're crazy. Um, <laughs> And um, but all of it just kind of makes an impact. So just just really simple stuff. Um, and I only coach big kids basketball. Also had to coach little kid basketball because my kids were playing. And then invite our neighbors and these other kids who don't have um, fathers around to do it. And um, we are equally as bad in little kid basketball. <laughs> um, so the little guy um, Don Don here, he's a great leader. Everybody loves to follow him. He's really fun. But his idea of basketball is he runs down and he just tackles the goal, and all nine kids follow him. And then there's actually no basketball that happens. Um, so some of these pictures from another thing. So what we found is as we struggled through trying to share truth um, with these guys and just intermix in our life and and really in every part like a principle that we'll we'll talk about a little bit in every part and everything we do like it's always sharing the truth like we we take every opportunity because guess what real life stuff happens they're going to ask you questions we're going to i'm going to find a find a bible story that's going to relate that to you and we're going to talk about it for working out in the in the yard and we're clearing a field you know we're going to we're going to talk about you know you know the story in the bible about going and buying the lot you know, and investing your whole life in it, or whatever. There's always a story about that. And so what we found is in doing those things and sharing truth and doing those things that we started to see um, God really just bless that in amazing ways. Um, so this is a picture from our house church. that was me in our house. And this was um, one of the guys I'm about to show a couple more pictures of, um, a guy by the name of Dell, who um, lives on a street just behind me. Um, and... When he was in middle school, was just really he kept getting kicked out of school, kicked out of school, kicked out of school, just this cycle. Um, and a, uh, a guy actually shared the gospel with him, and and he accepted it, but didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and about the time we moved in, we got involved in his life, um, and he just eats it up. He just loves it. And so 
crazy thing. He decided he had been really thinking through um, this idea of getting baptized. For some reason, this idea of getting baptized is really, really um, kind of a sticking point for some of these guys. So he kind of accepted Jesus, you know, that part of it. But he felt like if he was baptized, he had to really give up all the things in his culture. And so there's just this period where he really wasn't ready to do that. Um, and in our community, uh, sexual sin is a big, big deal. Like um, most of the kids we deal with um, have been sexually abused or know somebody who's been sexually abused. Um, the idea of uh, sexual purity is really non-existent in our, in our community, and so it's a real big deal. And so this idea for any of these um, high school guys, especially, um, or girls really, to, to give that part up is just, just totally foreign to them. And so we see them struggling with that, and they're just super honest about it. Um, and he got to a point, it's been a, uh, a couple of years ago, where he wanted to be baptized. And he just, he was ready. He wanted to make that proclamation. We had been talking about it for a while. And so we are like, well, you know, we meet in our house. So he wanted to be baptized in the bath. So that's what we did. Um, and it was great. He's a really big guy. He's, he's now a football player at Tennessee State, um, and which has been just amazing to, to kind of see his transformation in him. So we baptized him in the bath. And... Um, and these are a few pictures of that really big guy in our bathtub, which is not that big. Um, so then my daughter accepted Christ um, not too long after that. Um, and she decided she wanted to get baptized. And we talked about some different options. We had a lot of different uh, ideas about how that was going to be. You know, my wife would buy a really pretty dress and we would go get baptized. And all the family would come in a really pretty church. And she said, no, I want to be baptized in the bathtub like Belle. And... <laughs> And uh, after adjusting our mind to that, we baptized her in the bathtub. So, so now every time JP takes a bath, he says he's baptizing himself. So we're, so we're working through some of these concepts. Um, so, so that's a really kind of simplified um, idea of what's kind of happened in the last four years. But the truth is, like, I think sometimes we go to conferences like this or we go to talks like this and we want a formula. We want something that we can kind of compress down um, and then we can just imitate it. And the truth is, if you do that, you are, um, you're just going such the complete wrong way. That's not the way God works. He um, has given us some kind of overarching themes for our life, but then he wants us to be guided through the Holy Spirit. And he's preparing things for us to do. And we're all made a little bit different. Uh, and Jesus was the fullness of God in human form. But in the church, we're all made up of just parts. And, and the way the Bible describes it is, is the church then becomes kind of the fullness of him when it kind of comes together, right, as all the gifts come together. And it's a really beautiful picture uh, when it works right. Um, but there are some principles I've kind of kind of learned over the last three or four years I kind of want to pass on um, of why I would encourage people that if you're in this path, one is God might be calling you to work in underserved areas in America. And, and if you are like, God bless you, God created you for that. Don't shy away from it. Um, the other is if you're here and you think you're called overseas, um, but the timing's just not right or you're meeting roadblocks, it doesn't mean that you just have to just have to stop, right? Um there's other ways to serve God in under, underserved areas, and, and God is glorified through that, and it will be better for you. So uh, principle number one, God is a God of justice. We don't have to look very far. I could, I could, there's so many different Bible verses about this that we could share about. Um, most of the prophets uh, write about this a lot. 
Um, in particular, he's a God of justice for the poor. Um, the story I, we were just reading in church, and so it's fresh on my mind, is as Jesus, as he comes in to Jerusalem to die, um, uh, right after the triumphal entry in the book of Mark, he comes in, it's, it's in the evening, and he looks around, and he goes to the temple, and he just kind of looks around, and then he goes back out to Bethany. And then the next day, he comes back, uh, with a purpose, right? So he's there to do battle. Everybody thinks he's there to be anointed as a king and to kick Rome out and to establish this um, kingdom on um, on earth as they thought it was going to be. Um, but what he does is he goes back in that very next day and he goes into the temple and this time with a vengeance, right? And he goes in and he sees people in there and they're changing money and they're selling animals. Um, and he flips over their money tables. He drives out their um, tables of pigeons and doves. Um, and he just, he, he really just is very angry, right? So it's this picture angry. And so for the longest time, I've just kind of seen this story as a story of one of God loves his house, right? So God loves his church and he hates it when people are in his church doing bad things. And so, you know, when people are in church and they're cutting up, we ought to kick them out, right? That's not at all what that story is about, right? Um, it's a story about justice, right? So the, the, the time of, uh, of, in, in Jewish history at that point, it was just totally corrupt, right? And so we see him addressing this with the Pharisee all the time. But um, the people who sacrificed um, pigeons or doves were the poor people, right? They're the people who couldn't afford greater sacrifices, right? And people flocked to Jerusalem for Passover, for all these festivals. Um, and they flocked there to, to meet God and to... to um, get forgiveness of their sins and to, you know, and when they go there, right, they go in there. Um, I, I heard in a sermon that a dove at that time was maybe the equivalent of maybe like five cents, right? So like maybe a nickel, right? And so they would come and maybe they didn't have a dove or maybe they brought a dove with them and maybe they would bring their dove to the priest and the priest was like, well, this isn't right up to the specifications. Why don't you go out there and buy a dove, right? So then they would go out and buy a dove and it would be $4, right, for poor people. Um and so it just become this huge corrupt system, right? And um, the truth is God never needed a house to be worshipped in anyways, right? So like David, after David finally brought the Ark of the Covenant um, into Jerusalem, he was so, over, you know, so overjoyed, he had danced in the streets. He wanted to do something for God. He said, God, I'm going to build you a house. And God said, who are you to build me a house? I don't need you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And the house is going to be a son, right, that's going to come from your line. And that's going to be your house. Jesus is the house, right? And so when Jesus shows up, he sees people um, oppressing the poor and trying to, and not just oppressing them, but oppressing them through spiritual realms, right? So they're coming, hoping to meet with God, and they're getting ripped off, right? So um, if this strikes a chord, it should, because in my neighborhood, there are churches everywhere, everywhere, right? And they are oppressing people. They're taking their monies. They're um, teaching them false doctrines. It's everywhere. I had a, um, I had a woman come to me in the in the clinic. Um, it was uh, it's been it's been about a year ago, and um, I see a lot of um, young women for STDs. Like I said, sexual sin is a big big deal in our neighborhood. And she came in, and um, I test her, and she actually um, had an STD, so I had to bring her back and counsel her. And, and she was just heartbroken, and she started telling me her story, and her story was that she had been a prostitute um, for a long time. She had been abused as a girl, a little girl, um, like most of them have, and then she had confused the way love was um, distributed, and so she had become a prostitute. 
um, but then she knew something was wrong in there, and so she had um, gone into a church to um, finally and heard a version of the gospel and accepted it. Um, and the pastor started um, to then um, kind of disciple her and teach her, and, um, and then he told her that God had told him that they should start being sexually active together. And so he started to have sex with her. Um, and that was where she had gotten this most recent STD. And, and it just breaks your heart, but it's so, so, so common, like this story. Um, and, and that story goes on. I, I eventually got that pastor into the clinic and confronted him, um, which was a, a really crazy day in and of itself. But, um, but God is a God of justice, right? And so um, this picture is a picture of um, the first year that we were there, guys who had completed. Um, we made them memorize the timeline of the entire Old Testament, and uh, most of these guys, if you run into them on the street and ask them, they can, they can still recount it. There's a few of them that maybe not. Um, <laughs> but um, so we took them as a, um, as a reward for our 0-9 season and for them memorizing the um, Old Testament. We took them to South Carolina to um, a lake house that um, my family has and uh, just real cultural shock. They, they all thought that we were going to encounter the KKK as soon as we crossed the border. <laughs> And literally, one of the guys in this picture, um, we were talking about what they were unpacking. He's like, "I'm gonna, I'm bringing a gun." I was like, "Why?" And he's like, "Well, some of my relatives told me that they'll arrest us as soon as we go into South Carolina, and they're gonna, they're gonna get us." Um, uh, true story. As we pulled into South Carolina, it was like midnight. I was speeding. I got pulled over, and he was in the car. And they, they literally were trying to get out of the car to run into the woods. And it's, it's very dark out there, and um, we looked, we were a real spectacle. The cop was coming up, and they were panicking. Um, but anyways, these, um, these, these 12 guys, and in subsequent years it's been different guys. Some, some have stayed on a long time, and um, some have kind of passed through. Um, but they're kind of a picture to me of, of justice. Uh, just months ago in, in Memphis, you, you might have seen it, it, was, it turned into kind of a national story. Um, there's a Kroger in Memphis, and there's a CC's Pizza, which is... A lot of these guys' favorite place to eat. You can pay like $4 and you can eat all the terrible pizza you want. Um, and they love it, right? And so there's a Kroger right next to that. And um, there's a group of uh, 12 or 13 um, young African-American guys. And they came out of CeCe's Pizza. And through a series of events, they ended up jumping uh, a um, Caucasian guy going into the Kroger. And they um, beat him and then two other guys very, very badly. Um, and it just erupted a real firestorm of media attention. Um, and the, the truth is, is, is when people saw those stories, and if you go through the bottom and you read the comments on those stories, like the way people condemn um, these guys and um, it's pretty hard. But the truth of the matter is, is I know guys just like them, right? And the truth is um, a lot of them have been sexually abused. A lot of them have been physically abused by their parents. Most of them, their fathers have never been involved. They've never had a positive male role model at all. In our neighborhood, like, it is a very, very rare thing that I see a dad that is positively involved, right? There occasionally is a dad who um, uh, will come around and beat their kid. Like, we had one kid who um, had been um, sexually abused, and, and then he was caught then sexually abusing another kid. Um, and then his dad, who had been in and out of jail, came back into the picture and beat him so bad because of what he found out he had done that he had to go to the ambulance. 
But this is a situation they grow up in. It's just, it's unjust. The average ACT score in our neighborhood is 15. Um, in this picture is um, the valedictorian of our high school, right? He's actually at UT Knoxville right now. Amazing kid, very bright. His ACT score was 18, right? Three points below the national average is 21, right? Um, I'm telling you, this kid is smart. Like, he's smart. But the educational system that he's grown up in is unjust, right? The schools in our neighborhood, like these kids, if you ask them, they have never been in a school with anybody that is not African-American. Like, right? It's not just about color. It's about that we're still in Memphis. We're still very much segregated, right? And it's not just that, but it's not equal at all. They're not allowed to bring their books home. And then their teachers will give them assignments to do on a computer. They don't have a computer at home, right? And so we can talk about, like, you know, health care disparities in Memphis, right? So if you're an African-American, you are much, much more likely to die of heart disease, of cancer, of all th- like, just name it. Any of it, right? Like, you think about, we don't have grocery stores with good options in our neighborhoods. We have, like, ten corner stores. And we've got one grocery store that's got okay options, right? And so we could, we could talk about that all the time. But Jesus, when he encountered the injustice of his times, like, there's no other time in scriptures that Jesus gets, like, physically confrontational. Like, Right? As he did, and, and it's in all four Gospels, him clearing out the temple. And as we read the prophets, as we read the whole of scriptures, like, um, we can be a part of, of fixing some of those injustices and a part of stepping in and, and showing these guys um, um, different ways. And so, um, and we ought to be a part of that. And, and it's very hard to be a part of that if you don't live among them. Okay? So the other idea is that you can live apart and just drive in and do ministry. And there's some good that comes out of that. But you don't really see who these people are. They're gonna, they'll just give you a picture of them that you want, right? So we have lots of different ministries that will come into the neighborhoods, and lots of these guys like will go in and act a certain way, and because it's for their benefit for a short while. But you don't really get to the bottom of their hurt and pain um, until you live next to them and um, and with them and share in it a little bit. Um, second principle, and this is a, a huge, huge principle, is we're called to a life of denial, right? And so um, in, our, uh, in our house church, we've um, been going through and trying to, to memorize the book of Mark, the entire thing, um, and, so, and really be able to story it. And once again, a lot of the guys, uh, there's some different ones now in, in the house church, but um, can really recite to you this last time we took them on a trip, they had to have the first five chapters of Mark storied and they all, they all could do it but anyways as we've gone through it's been really good to read it in context because for the first really seven up to eight chapters like the book of mark is very little teaching at all like it's all action right and it's all jesus proclaiming himself to be the son of god and through miracles and through things he says um and it's just one thing after another like he's proclaiming to be the son of god um and in mark chapter 8 He's walking with his disciples, and this is right in the middle because Mark 16 chapters. He asks his disciples, well, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're you know, John the Baptist, a prophet, like whoever. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, the one that always wants to talk, says, you're, you're the son of God, right? He confesses it. They get it. And, and, and Jesus is, is okay with that he's he's happy with that right because they've gotten half of the gospel right so half of the gospel is that jesus is the son of god he's the messiah he's god incarnate right 
And so then, right after that, Peter confesses it. Then it says, And then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem, be tortured and crucified, and then rise again, right? And it says he spoke plainly about it, right? And we all know the story, like Peter says, No, 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 that is a terrible idea, Jesus. Don't do that. Um, I've got a lot better idea. And then Jesus tells him, he calls him Satan, tells him to get behind him. But the whole thing is like, really, the gospel is two parts. One is we have to get to a point where we stop um, questioning who Jesus is and we put our faith in him, right? And we say, you are the son of God. But then the second part, and they have to go together, is then we have to choose to follow him. Because he teaches him, he says, Peter, you have in mind the things of man, not the things of God. If you want to really come after me and follow me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Because what does it gain for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul, right? And so it's this principle. And really from that point on in Mark, we see Jesus teaching this life of denial and teaching that he's going to die and he's going to rise again and showing his disciples how to follow him into that, right? And so it is very counter-American culture to live a life of denial. Very counterculture. And so one of the appealing things to me about going overseas is I love the ideas. I've, I've been in different places um, serving on short-term trips. Is The pace of life is, is, is way toned down. There's not as many distractions, so people talk more. Um, it's, you spend more time with your family. You don't have a thousand things going on, and your iPhone's buzzing all the time, although there's phones everywhere now. Um, but I, I love that idea. But then when we're in America, we, we can't escape it, right? So I'll come back to America with this idea, like, I'm going to come back and I'm going to live that way in America, and it's very hard, right? And so you have to find a way to escape out of that. And so part of that for us has been, like, moving into this neighborhood that's so against everything that I grew up in. Um, but it's a denial of the things that we've been taught through, um, through our culture, one of those things is my wife. This is a picture of her house. And so, um, like I said, uh, Nigel here uh, actually transformed this from before to after. Um, so we had, my wife has this idea of what her dream house would look like, right? And so it's in the country. There's not many people around. It's got a wraparound porch. Like we've got dogs who don't need fences because they can just run around. Like, right? Like it's, it sounds beautiful. Um, um, but that's not at all what God called us to at all. Uh, and so when we decided to move into um, into Orange Mound, like we started looking around, and there just really were not good housing options at all. And um, and we were still going to try and buy this house to move into a house there. Um, but when we did it, it doesn't matter if you build a brand new house from the ground up and you put a million dollars into it, and then you build it in Orange Mound, and then a month after it's built, you go and get it appraised. It's going to appraise for forty thousand dollars. It's just the economy of Orange Mound. Like, no house is going to appraise for more than $40,000. And so we found this out because when we tried to buy a house, and a lot of the houses in Orange Mound, the existing ones there, uh, they don't have central heat and air. You know, there's just a lot of problems um, with a lot of things that need to be fixed. Most of them need a new roof. And so the cost of those things are kind of set. Like, you know, it's $10,000 for central heat and air. It's about $10,000 to get a new roof or whatever. But they're preset things. So we're going to buy a house and then try and just patch it up for us to live in found banks wouldn't give us money to do it. Um, and so we, we ran into a lot of trouble. But a, a ministry actually 
uh, came in and they had been given this house uh, through the, there's a lot of blights in our community, so houses have been abandoned. And so uh, prior to us moving in there, it had just been sitting there for the last five or six years. There was a sleeping bag in there, so there's some people who had been sleeping in there illegally, and that happens a lot in our um, in our neighborhood. Um, but we were part through this organization of coming in and using volunteer work. So to my knowledge, Nigel didn't get paid a dime to do it. So, um, and actually, uh, used some of the same teenagers that I'm in relationship with. They came and, um, let them work alongside them. I'm sure they were more of a hindrance than help at times. Um, knowing them now. Um, but kind of got to rebirth this house and it is nowhere near, um, our dream house. Um, but is better than anything we could have imagined, right? And so we'll talk about that again. So, um, so this picture to the left here um, is shot at uh, the house across the street from us, right? Um, and it was shot one night. My wife looked out the window because there was a lot of commotion going on, and she's like, somebody out there has a Tommy gun. I was like, what's a Tommy gun? I don't even know what a Tommy gun is. And we looked out the picture, and this is just a partial they were shooting a, a rap video um, across the street, um, an illegal one, um, and this was the picture, right, that we're looking out at. And um, that video then um, set off a, a string of violence on our street over about a three-month uh, span where there were multiple shootings, um, multiple people died, and uh, culminated with a drive-by shooting to our next-door neighbors. So y'all probably remember the little guy who tackles the goalpost, right? So his house, um, one night, it was about 9 o'clock at night, and I was sitting in my front room uh, watching TV, and just just gunfire just erupted, right? And our houses are just kind of right next to each other, and um, just erupted. And so I jumped down on my belly and laid there for a minute till it stopped. Uh, and then I got up, and I ran into my kid's room to make sure that none of their windows had been shot through. And, um, and then I ran outside because I... Um, Assume because sometimes they'll just shoot guns in the air, and it happens a lot, especially in the holidays. And so I was angry, so I thought if they're just shooting guns in the air, I've got to I got to deal with this. I ran outside, and my neighbor had been shot nine times in the chest. Um, not the little guy, not the a bigger guy, um, but been shot nine times in the chest. And um, and so I ran over there, was there with him, just kind of holding him till the cops got there. Miraculously, he did um, survive it. Um, but. But that's that's the life we live. It's certainly a denial of, you know, so in, in American culture, like security and safety for your children is a priority, right? And and people actually say it's a biblical mandate, right? I, I can't find that in the Bible. But um, people will, will talk to you with such conviction. And I actually got six years ago at this conference, I had somebody who was at the conference with us when we are this is when we were talking about going overseas, said, um, you're ungodly for wanting to put your kids in, in danger in that way, right? Um, and so, and at times we've we've faced that same idea, like how could you do this, right? Like how could you put your kids in these situations? Um, uh, and the truth is, um, because he loves them more, right? And it doesn't mean uh, if y'all were in the big thing, it doesn't mean like Kent Bradley said earlier, like it doesn't mean you're not going to get a bullet or you're not going to get shot, right? But what God has in store for us is better, right? Because we're not looking back. He has eternity in mind. And so my kids have a worldview that is drastically different um, than even the one that I grew up with and so many people are now. Um, they understand this is us going through. We have There's a big, there's a Southern Heritage uh, 
parade every year um, for the big historically black colleges. Um, two of them play Tennessee State and uh, Jackson State play a football game. And uh, so, anyways, we get to run through and look really weird as we throw out candy. Um, but my my kids, like Bethany, um, my oldest, she can articulate things a little bit better. Uh, a year or so ago, we were asking her because she can actually remember the house we lived in before we moved to Memphis. And she, you know, we were saying, you know, she was talking about how much she missed her room because in her old house um, she had this huge pink room and it was really great. And she was saying how much she missed that. And we were like, well, you know, I mean, would you want to go back, you know, and live there? And we were prepared for her to say yes. Um, She said no. And we said, well, why? She was like, because of my boys, you know, because of my boys. (laughs) And we were like, what? She was like, my my basketball boys, they're my my brothers. Um, and so, you know, this is her playing on my little basketball team. And so these are the fans she's got. And um, it's it's often a spectacle whenever we go anywhere. Like people think they have no idea what to think when we travel around. <laughs> um, so they've just learned. They've just learned that especially um, in regards to races, they just don't see it, right? And, um, and they don't see the, um, the socioeconomic boundary. You know, they don't see how weird it is. For us, it's still kind of weird what we do, and for outsiders, but for them, it's just it's just life, and and they love it, um, and and so it's just become a part of them. So it's you know I wouldn't trade that for anything, right? And it doesn't, in no way does it mean that everything's going to be secure and great always. Um, we realize that, but we also see the the greatness of God within it. Um, this is a picture of another little guy, and also a. a a good friend of mine, um, is I value my time, right? And I want my time, and I want it, my quiet time, and I want my time to watch TV, and I want all these other things. Um, God doesn't value those things at all. Um, and certainly my neighbors value them not at all, right? <laughs> and so they just show up all the time, right? And there are times... Um, that the doors are closed. I mean, certainly, like, there's, there's, there's times we say no. I don't want anybody to hear that we never say no. But, but the interruptions are, are, are of the Lord. And the sweetest times have happened when, you know what, they come in at 10.30 and I've told them, don't show up here for a ride after 10 o'clock. But they show up at 10.30 and they don't have another way. So I'm like, all right, read this chapter of the Bible and we'll talk about it on the way home, right? And so, you know, we, we'll, we'll play give and take, right? Um, and, but, my time is my time is just it's not my own, and I've had to learn to adjust with that. Um, church, right? So we could spend a whole hour or two talking about this. Um, one of the things in Memphis that they did way prior to me getting there um, was was putting churches in the houses instead of um, paying for big buildings. Um, and a big reason why is you know most of the revenue from churches go back into sustaining the building of the church, right? Um, so I've seen different quotes, sometimes 70, 80, sometimes 100% go back into paying the pastor and doing all these things. And and then it's very hard. There are very few churches. There are some. There are some churches that have done a really great job of being kind of um, cross-cultural and having different culture in there. But most churches um, are just a snapshot of, either white America or black America or Asian America or whatever, right? They're just, that's all they are um, because it's very uncomfortable to be with people who are not like ourselves. And so so we have church in our house, and um, it is not an 
it's not an idea that's easy to love from my perspective. Because once again, I love like going to church and sitting and being entertained and hearing a great speaker. And um, that's that's great. Um, and when you do church at home, it's just chaos, it seems like, with guys who don't understand church and your kids and you're responsible for teaching your kids. You can't just drop them off in, a, in an area. Um but it's it's amazing too. Like I, I wouldn't, I don't think I could ever go back to doing it another way, um, because it does. It puts the onus on you to teach your children and to teach the others and to learn to live in close community with each other and resolve differences. And there's lots of differences um, that we've encountered. Um, and it's and it's just great. Like we we share meals together, we share life together all week long. Um, and it, it's hard, um, but it's worth it. This is a very outdated picture. This was a couple of years ago. I'm, I'm, I don't take pictures a lot, so I don't have a very recent one. Uh, our church looks a lot different than this now. Um, we've, it's, we've actually split into multiple churches, and, um, but it's been really, really great, and we've seen a lot of fruit in it. Um, so principle three, and this is probably the most important principle of all, um, in uh, the book of John, so does anybody know there's only there's only two miracles that are in all four Gospels? So I'll give you one of them, the resurrection. So does anybody else know the other miracle that's in all four Gospels? It's the feeding of 5,000, right? So no other miracle is in all four Gospels. So if somebody finds another one, then correct me. I'm, I'm always, but I don't think so. I think that's the only other miracle. And so um, it's recorded in all of them, and we get different pictures of exactly what happened before and after it. But in John's Gospel, he feeds 5,000 people, right? And then he gets, um, he actually pushes his disciples out. He stays up and prays, and in the middle of the night, um, he sees his disciples struggling, and he walks on water and gets into the boat, and they get to the other side, right? And when they get to the other side, or actually when the, other, when the rest of the 5,000 wake up the next morning and realize Jesus isn't there, um, they also get in boats and go over to where Jesus is at, and they show up, and now it's a huge crowd, and Jesus looks at him. He says, "You haven't come here because I'm, because I'm God. You've come here because your bellies were fed, right?" Um, and he proceeds then to tell them this really confusing story about that if you really want to follow me, I'm the bread of life, and you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Like you can read it all you want. Like it's hard to get it all figured out, right? And certainly, like you know, there's I think now. Through the use of the Holy Spirit, we can decipher some of the things. But certainly at that moment, like nobody understood what he was talking about. Nobody, right? Like, what is he talking about? This dude is crazy. Eat his flesh. I mean, that's despicable. Like, can't even imagine what to do. And so at the peak of his popularity, he's got all these people following him, ready. They actually said in, in, um, when they got there, they said they wanted to make him king, right? Um, they were ready to make him king. And he tells this really... Just crazy example of what it means to follow him. And he looks around and everybody's walking away. Everybody, right? Except for his few disciples. And what they said is, they said, this is a hard teaching. Who can follow this, right? And then he looks over at his disciples. He's like, aren't you going to leave too? And Peter looks at him and he says, where are we going to go? You're the son of God. You have the words to eternal life. Like, where else are we going to go, right? Notice Peter didn't say, like, that was an amazing sermon you just gave, and I love it, I want to follow you because of that. No, he just said, like, I don't understand what you just talked about either. Like, it's scary and it's weird, but, like, 
You are the Son of God, right? And so this principle should be inside of us. Like, why do we do the things we do? Or why should we live counterculturally? Why should we go to the nations? Why do we, do we have to understand it all first to go? Like, there's still so much of the Bible. Like, you know, if we truly believe, you know, what it means to be, to, to be sanctified, it means we're always going to be learning. Like, God is so far beyond our ability to comprehend. Like, right? Like, there are parts of God that we'll, we can spend the rest of our lives studying about, but we'll never comprehend it, like, because we're always growing towards that and we'll never get there. Um, at some point, we have to move from just studying about God to living out the truth and following Him, right? And we don't do it because we heard a great sermon about it. We do it because He's the Son of God, and where else are we going to go, right? And as I was um, kind of going through this, there was a, a great quote. Uh, that sums up, I feel like, a lot. It's by C.S. Lewis. It says, Those divine demands which sound to our natural ears, most like those of a despot, and least like those of a lover, in fact, marshal us where we should want to go if we knew what we wanted. We don't know what we want. Like, we think we have an image of what we want, but we don't have any idea. Like, And so he has to move us towards things that seem crazy and outlandish and confusing but we go because he's the son of God. And when we get there, we realize that's really where we wanted to be. And my wife and I say it all the time, like we're completely wrecked. Like you could not force us to go back, right? Like, and I think about if I would have chosen the other four, and sometimes that's just futile thinking because God's ordained things, but um, like what we would have missed, right? And there's been a lot of pain and there's been a lot of, heartache along the way and sharing and the burdens of others and having them share our burdens. Um, but at some point, we just have to go because he commanded us to go. And when we get there, we realize it, it, it was for our benefit. Like, um, why does God demand so much for us? Like, right? Does he need us? Like, no. It's out of his love. He wants to share it with us, right? So that's the truth. So um, so I'll have a time for questions. I will plug one last thing. Um Sometimes we talk about all these things, and then there's no way to know how to connect it. So if you're medical at all, like I will plug um, CCHF, um, it was a conference, 2015, Atlanta. I think it's April 23rd, 25th. Um, so if you're medical at all and want to know how you can plug into communities and meet other people, because listen, like what we do is not, um, it's not unique. There's a lot of other people doing this in a lot of parts of the United States, um, and um, a lot of them get together in April 23rd, 25th, and talk about. It. And there's all types of you know they're underserved because there's not enough people serving in these areas. So there's all types of job opportunities um, and people that you can meet up with and go and do this yourself. But uh, one of the things that's very um, that turns people off uh, to this is that you can do it anywhere, right? You can do it where you're living right now. Like you can. There is wherever you're living, there is a part of that city or town that is marginalized. There is. And you could move there and endure the scorn of all the people in the church that tell you how stupid it is. But you could. And that judges a lot of people, right? And there's a, um, But you can. And the exciting thing to me is um, I waited till after I graduated residency. And, um, but around me in the world that I live in, I see medical students doing it in medical school. I see residents doing it while they're in residency. I see some college students. Like I don't. I see teachers doing it. I see like it's not like I see people doing. It. You don't have to wait either. 
And it's the greatest preparation ever for if you're going to go overseas or if you're going to spend your whole life doing it. Um, and I, a lot of things we talked about today, I'm struggling through again. My family and I are going to be, in, if, if things fall right, we'll be moving to Africa next year. Um, and I'm in that spot of it all seems crazy and dumb because we're going to be working with a very, very hard people, a people that um, don't want us there. And it's going to be hard. And my family's going to adjust to it. Um, but God has affirmed it's the right thing for us to do, and so we're going to do it. So um, so that is all I've got. Questions? Yeah, so so good question and one that uh, I meant to talk about. So the reason this works, I actually spend more time with my family now than I did when I lived in a suburb. And um, and the reason is is because everything we do, we do as a family, right? So um, I'm going to read um, stories to my kids at night, right? And so if you come over, like... <coughs> you can come be a part of that. Like, I'm not going to, like, oh, well, you come over and you want me to make you a sandwich. Like, no. Like, like if we're if it's dinner time, you can eat with us. If it's story time for my kids, come listen to story time with my kids, right? So my life is not segmented. Like, I don't have a work life. I don't have a then church life. And then I don't have, like, a couple hours of ministry I do in a week. Like, it's all together, and we do it as a family, right? And... um and and that's just and so it ends up being like and for my kids is they're involved in all of it right so like when I coach the teenage boys and we go out and we do basketball practice wherever like guess what I take a couple of my kids with me and we go do it together and they hear me tell those stories and you know if I really wanted to embarrass JP he's five like he could get up here and tell you most of the book of Mark like because he's heard us doing it over and over again and in church like it's distracting it's crazy to do it but um, we just live in such a segmented world where we do all that and when and moving into the neighborhood, and it's been through trial and error, like, in all the things, like, these principles, like, we've overshot one way or the other and then had to bring back into balance, but um, the truth is, like, it's all done at home, and and we have our ideas of what we're going to do in a day. We just invite people to come in and be a part of it. And is your clinic in the neighborhood? My clinic's in the neighborhood. So, yeah, so, like, I literally, like, it's two minutes walk, you know, and so, like, at lunch I'll scoot home, like, my patients are my neighbors, my, and so and it works well. Like I share the gospel all day long in the clinic, and then there's spillover for them coming into the house church, and so it's all integrated. Um, and I think it's the way that God intends it to be. Like it's just not segmented. So, and then sometimes we we do the clinic on the front porch. You know, people show up and. We've taken staples out of people's heads and done some different things on the porch, and um, you know what? It's it's, but it's it's okay. So, good question. Are there any boundaries that you have set up? So sure, like there, um, so there are, and and they they give and take. Um, so I have young kids in the house, right? So a good example of that. Um, most of the people, like I said, most of the kids in our um, neighborhood have distorted. Um, truths about sexuality. Most of them have been abused. So, um, I don't, I don't let people stay in our house, in our house, right? So I'm not going to be near that. So there's always crises going on with 
everybody in our neighborhood all the time. We do have a little guest house behind us, and we have had some of these teenagers live with us, right? They don't live within our house. Like, it's connected, but you cannot, you have to go, it's behind our fence. It's kind of hard to explain, but you, you, they're not in the house, like, in the, where they can have access to my kids, right? In that sense, right? And so and they know, like, they're not allowed to be in bedrooms where my kids are, or really with any other. I mean, we have lots of small kids in our house all the time. And so there, I think as, as we've been in there, we've had to set some of those boundaries. It's not just free will, because we know there's lots of evil in our neighborhood, and, and I am as a father, I am, you know, I need, to, I need to be a father to my kids. I don't need to put them in those situations, right? And so, yeah, so we set up those, those boundaries, and, and, there's, and, and there's certainly days when um, my wife or myself says, whew, not today. Like, I can't do it today. Like, right? Or we, um, but then you get to see community, like within our church. Like, you know, there's lots of people that live in our community now, several that are here um, in the talk. Um, and so you kind of see the fullness of Christ as people minister in different ways. So, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly boundaries. I just don't know if it's wise. And the reason I don't stress a lot of that in the talk is so many people want a formula. And if I sit up here and I say, well, these are specific ones, like inevitably, because I've done this with other talks, like with other people who've talked, I'm like, I want to, I got to do that exactly right. You know, like when helping hurts, like there's great principles in that. But man, if you boil it down to a formula, you're, it's, it's, it can be bad. So, anything else? Yeah, so I, I, I admittedly do a very poor job of this at, at times. Um, but our ministry should be one that, that goes back and forth, right? And there's some people that do a really good job of communicating that. But it should be an example to, in kindness and in patience, tell the truth. Because that's actually the um, the gospel, or especially the letters. I think Timothy talks about that. Like, with great patience and great kindness, we should be explained. Because guess what? Like, those people need the truth, too. And a lot of them are living in falsehoods. You know, when Jesus came, um, he was eating with sinners at Matthew's house, right, in Mark chapter 2. And everybody comes up and they're like, what are you doing? You know, the Pharisees say, why are you eating with sinners? And Jesus said, I didn't come for the uh, healthy, I came for the sick, right? Um, And so it's this idea, like, obviously we know that everybody is sick. The Pharisees just didn't realize it, right? Um, And so in our neighborhood, like, our people realize they're sick. Like, they realize they're in bondage. Like, they, they realize they need help, right? And there's all types of ways people try and pour help into these neighborhoods, and some are very destructive the way they do it. Um, but sometimes in these moments where people who are in American culture and live, trying to live out their faith through the culture become convicted of that, like, it's a perfect opportunity to, in love, like, talk through that. Um, and on good days, I do that. On bad days, I just... Tell them to get away, or what? You know, I mean, like we all we all react to stuff, and I, you know, I mean, we all have our areas that get us hot and bothered, and at times like that can be for me, and I'm, I've had to learn because um, that's that's a sin, honestly, is when I just say I'm right, you're wrong, like, but you know, I mean, sometimes that's our our default. You know, what we're doing is best always. You know, I mean, like, not so. Like we should use it as a chance, and there's just so many great like. One of the things we stress is story in the Bible. The Bible is one huge story of redemption, right? 
and people just like here, so like our guys like really cannot read for comprehension at all. And so like another mistake I, I learned is like I would make them read stuff and then they would try and tell me what they read and it would be nowhere close. And so we realized like out of necessity we needed to story the Bible and um, and we want to do it well. We don't want to just make up stuff. Like, you know, as I tell these stories, I hope you'll go back and reread them to say, you know, I mean, is what he said really true? Um, but, you know, we ought to be able to, Think about stories when people confront us with that, like, oh, but this is a truth of, Je- you know, like Jesus said, like, you, know, you got to love me more than your parents. So you have to hate your parents, right? And so obviously he talks about we just need to love him more. So any other questions or? No, no, I, I, yeah, I, I leverage, um, so I'm shrewd, like, you know, there's a Bible verse on being shrewd, right? Um, and, uh, I actually learned this from my father. My father's in here. So we used to, he used to have, he would let any of my friends spend the night at my house on the weekends, um, especially Saturdays. But if you spent the night at the house, you had to go to church on Sunday, right? So people just knew that. That was a rule, right? And so, so what I've learned is that, um, it is good, it is healthy for these guys to have expectations. Most of our, our guys and girls, like have they, they have never had anybody tell them what to do, right? And that's why they cannot sustain themselves in school because it's so outside of themselves, right? Because they don't have a dad to slap them in the back of the head. And so they literally, they wake up, they go to school if they want to go to school, they walk around the neighborhood, they throw a rock in a window if they want to, they run away from the cop, they beat somebody up, they do whatever they want to do, and there's no consequences, right? So a little 14-year-old showed up in my um, house this year, and he was just tattooed all the way down. He had just gone and gotten tattoos on somebody's front porch. I wanted to choke him, almost did, and I was like, I'm going to call his mom. And I was like, it doesn't matter. Like, it, it just doesn't matter. Like, and I've done that. Like, I've grabbed by the neck and taken them to their moms or grandmas or whoever. And so... One of the things I've learned is, like, you have to give them expectations. You have to, you know, that's healthy, right? So that's what I do with my kids, and so that's what I do with them. And so if you're on my basketball team and you then, during basketball practice, sneak downstairs and steal out of the kitchen of the church we're in and throw eggs on the floor, like, you're going to clear the lot across the street from me, right? So real-life story, yeah. Um, uh, like, right? So, like, if you steal from me in my house and we find out about it, you're going to pick up all the rocks in my yard, right? So if you show up at my house and you want something from me, like, I love spending time with you. I love you so much. I want to have something productive to talk about on the ride. So whatever we're doing, whether it's Mark or whatever, you know. Yeah, so always, like, I'm leveraging for truth because that's what we need, and it's healthy and productive to do it anyways. And it helps me not be so angry at times. You know, like, because the truth is we get angry. Like, when we feel like we're being used all the time, like, we get cynical and we get angry, um, but if we're then using that for God's glory and then we're making them do something they really wouldn't want to do, same thing with them. Like, they don't want to do it. Like, I don't want to memorize that stuff. And then they're so proud of themselves when they do. Like, it is. Like, once again, it's that idea of, like, they don't even know what they want, right? You know, like, we went to lunch and JP told me what he wanted to eat. And I knew it really wasn't what he really wanted to eat, but I let him order it anyways. If he would have let me order, I, he would have gotten something better. So, same same principle. So, but yeah, no, I use that all the time. Sometimes more than else, depending on the the sin or the sin against us, the 
the higher the punishment or the higher the cost. So, yeah. All right. I think we're, I think we're almost at four. So thank you all very much. <laughs>